We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. You can contribute at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. California voters turned down labels for genetically modified foods. Now Washington state has certified a GMO ballot initiative to protect its valuable food markets abroad. So wheat and apples is a huge part that the underpinnings of our economic fiscal health in this state, if we label things here, we will have a much better chance of protecting our export markets. And food giants are rethinking their opposition to labels. Also, what's really happening with plans to drill for gas in a Pennsylvania forest loved and treasured for its beauty? Well, it was last summer, and it was someone calling me to say, what's going on in Rock Run? There's, there's the frackers are up there. They're all over the place. Unraveling the mystery of who's in charge and what's been agreed. We have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Last fall, agribusiness and giant food firms mounted a fierce lobbying effort to defeat a California ballot measure requiring the labeling of genetically modified organisms. But now they may be changing their approach. Monsanto CEO Hugh Grant told the Wall Street Journal he is, quote, up for a dialogue about labeling, even though the company spent more than $8 million to defeat the California measure. Sources tell Living on Earth that Walmart recently convened a private meeting of major food companies, including Pepsi, Coca-Cola, and Mars, to discuss how a federal GMO label might be developed to preclude a patchwork of state rules. Alaska already has a law on GM fish labeling, and Vermont, Missouri, New Mexico, and Connecticut are considering action. February 1st, Washington State certified a GMO ballot initiative. Trudy Bialik, Director of Public Affairs at PCC Natural Markets, has been working on the initiative and joins me now from Seattle, Washington. The key issue here in Washington, most of all, really, is labeling the genetically engineered salmon that's about to be approved by FDA. The fishing industry doesn't even want genetically engineered salmon approved, but if it's approved, at least give them labeling to protect the identity, the integrity, and the value of the wild salmon industry that we have here, the commercial fishing industry. This labeling law is the backup to what the fishermen are asking for, and frankly, for what the apple growers are asking for. The apple growers, the Washington Apple Commission, the U.S. Apple Association, both have come out publicly opposing genetically engineered apples. They're already planted here in Washington state, so is genetically engineered wheat. This is upsetting to a sector that depends on having products that they can sell to countries that are sensitive to genetically engineered foods and require labels. How much money are we talking about? How big is this export business? A third of the apple uh, of the apple crop here. Now, Washington State produces 60% of the nation's domestic supply, but it also has 30% of the total crop going overseas. Wheat, on the other hand, is our largest commodity export. It's right after Boeing in terms of value and ahead of Microsoft in terms of export value. So wheat and apples is a huge part of the underpinnings of our economic fiscal health in this state. If we label things here, we will have a much better chance of protecting our export markets. 
Now, I understand that representatives of many of the major food corporations uh, recently held a meeting to discuss a question of a federal rule on GMO labels. People who've been at those meetings have confirmed that the meeting happened. What would that mean? What does that mean to you, those meetings going on? Well, this topic is clearly on on the top of the agenda for many in the chemical and pesticide industry, and it's at the top of the agenda for many in the, uh, let's say, the convenience or snack food or junk food industry also. So it's something that's definitely they don't want customers to know that they're genetically engineered ingredients in their products. And so they're trying to figure out how they're going to navigate this. That's, that's pretty much all I can surmise from it. But why would the food industry shift so dramatically on this issue to start talking about, well, gee, maybe there's going to be a rule. What should this rule be? I just think they see the writing on the wall. I think we're going to get labeling. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And so they're logically trying to figure out what their position is going to be and how they're going to navigate it. Now, a few years ago, there was a debate about labeling bovine growth hormone in milk, but now the label essentially only indicates that certain products do not contain bovine growth hormone. What kind of label do you think the food industry might be pushing for, and what do you think consumers should have? I'm glad you brought up the voluntary labels, and you're right about milk. Voluntary labeling puts the responsibility on the wrong parties. And the problem is most supermarkets in this country and most consumers do not have access to the products that say produced without GMO foods. People want to know, our customers in particular, want to know which foods actually contain or are genetically engineered foods. The voluntary non-GMO label is not what they're asking for. What they're asking for is a declaration of the content of the foods they are buying, just like foods are labeled to reflect how much cholesterol, how much sodium, whether orange juice is from fresh or concentrate. It's simply a label with more information. How confident are you that this initiative petition will pass in Washington State? We're the underdog. There's no question about that. We just don't have the kind of money that the chemical and pesticide industries do. We never will until we can get a level playing field for our electoral system. And there isn't a five-to-one disproportionate funding in a run like we had in California. The opposition to labeling outspent proponents, they just have more money. Chemical companies, pesticide companies, giant junk food companies have a ton more money than grassroots folks. We're just everyday folks and farmers and fishermen. We don't have those kind of resources. So yeah, we are the underdog and it is formidable. It doesn't mean you don't give it a go. It doesn't mean you don't stand up and say, this is the right thing to do, and it's not just a foodie issue. This affects real people. It affects their livelihoods. It affects our fiscal health. Trudy Bialik is Director of Public Affairs at PCC Natural Markets in Washington State. Thanks so much, Trudy. Thank you. Cheap and plentiful coal generates about 45% of global energy-related CO2 emissions, as well as dangerous particulates linked to thousands of deaths each year in the U.S. alone. 
coal use in the U.S. has been dropping sharply over the past few years, but still, just a few blocks from where President Obama gave his inaugural address last month, the coal-burning boilers of the Capitol power plant continue to spew hazardous particulates into the air. And despite promises for many years to phase out coal completely there, the pollution continues, though it won't if a D.C. councilman has his say. But first, a bit of history. Back in 2009, 2,500 demonstrators took to the streets to protest this plant and coal use, and Living on Earth's Jeff Young went along. NASA scientist James Hansen has been sounding the alarm on global warming for more than 20 years. But even for him, this was new. The renowned climatologist has risked his reputation at congressional hearings and scientific gatherings by pushing his view of what rising CO2 levels could bring. But now he's risking something else arrest. Well, I can't let these, I can't talk about this problem and then let yet young people get arrested and I stand back behind them. Hansen shifted uneasily among a sea of young, scruffy demonstrators waving banners and banging makeshift bucket drums. In a few minutes, they would march to block the gates of the U.S. Capitol power station. Demonstrators see the nearly 100-year-old power plant as a symbol of an antiquated fuel that puts the future at risk. Coal contributes almost 40% of the country's CO2 emissions. And Hansen says he simply does not see any way to avoid dangerous warming without turning away from coal. I wouldn't say I'm an activist. I'm trying to make clear what the connection is between the science and the policy implications. Somebody has to do it. You know, you have a a president in office who's taking actions to address climate change. Why Uh, protest now? uh, I think that's a very good reason, because they're going to take positions in the near future. So I, I initially didn't like the idea because Obama had not had time. But after thinking about it, I decided this is the time to make clear what is needed in order to preserve the species and the planet that's existed for the last 10,000 years. With that, Hansen joined the march to the smokestacks a few blocks to the south. Chilly hours passed without any action by police. Roads and gates were blocked, federal property trespassed upon, and still, Capitol Police made no arrests. Eventually, James Hansen and the other demonstrators declared victory and walked away. Yeah, I think this was a huge uh, success and a step in the right direction, but it's not the end. (laughs) We can't stop here. uh, Any any disappointment at not getting arrested? No, I have a lot of work to do. I would would much (laughs) rather get back to that. No. (laughs) The Capitol power plant issue had already been settled anyway with a letter late last month from congressional leaders Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid. They instructed the power plant manager to phase out coal in favor of natural gas, a small symbolic victory that anti-coal activists promise will not be the last. Since Jeff Young reported this story nearly four years ago, the Capitol has begun to move away from coal power, and while it has reduced the amount of coal burned on the Hill, it's still not enough for D.C. City Council member Tommy Wells. He says that it's a mistake for the architect of the Capitol, that's the office that makes such decisions, to keep coal as a backup technology as it uses more natural gas. Councilor Wells is calling for a city ordinance that will prohibit the burning of coal in the nation's capital altogether. Burning coal is not appropriate in dense neighborhood areas. That plant is about three blocks away from three different neighborhood elementary schools where children go out and play during the day, and it's about six blocks from my home as well. 
You can see the smoke billowing out from the plant along with the steam. The neighbors report soot on their windowsills in their house when their windows are open. We know that because it's a short smokestack, the particulate pollution coming from the plant is right here in our neighborhood. We look back at our archives. We saw that back in 2008, the National Capitol building was saying it would be carbon neutral uh, within a few years. 2009, uh, when the Democrats controlled both houses, they made the commitment to phase out the use of coal at the Capitol Hill power plant. What happened? Well, I am not sure what happened. I mean, some would say that because there's a changeover in Congress that one party is more pro-burning coal than another party. And that really does lend itself to the fact that we need to just pass legislation that should not be subject to politics. It really needs to be subject to what's best for the people that live around the plant. This is the last power plant of any kind in the District of Columbia, in the city, that burns coal. And certainly coal is one of the worst polluters. So we need for them to get on with the business of converting the plant to state-of-the-art cogeneration gas plant. And to really put a final point on that, I am proposing legislation to end the burning of coal altogether. It's unsafe, and it really is unhealthy for the residents of D.C. How supportive do you think that uh, D.C. voters, D.C. residents, are going to be of this proposed change? I think D.C. voters would be pretty close to 100%. We really do not like burning coal in our city. Frankly, the number one pollution source in D.C. comes from coal-fired plants in neighboring states. And so if we can remove one more coal-fired plant from D.C., I believe that there's no question that the residents of the city will appreciate it. We have one of the highest rates of asthma, you know, in the country, in Washington, and we need to improve our air quality, and everybody wants to see that our children and, of course, our seniors who, you know, you have worse outcomes when your air quality is bad, that everyone is um, taken care of. What's the time frame for this, Councilman? I'm going to submit the legislation in a couple of weeks. I want to be sure that the legislation fully allows the architect of the Capitol to convert the plant, as they propose, to a modern plant that is a cogeneration plant with gas. They've applied to our permit office, Department of the Environment for D.C., to convert it. But what they didn't say is that they'll end burning coal. But I want to give them enough time to convert But then we put a final deadline saying no more coal after that date. And that's what the um, legislation will do. No more coal by 2015? Well, let's see exactly when the architects of the Capitol will be able to complete their conversion. But 2015 sounds great to me. It's really not soon enough, but we want to make it reasonable. Tommy Wells is the city council member for Ward 6 in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Mr. Councilman. You bet. Thank you very much. Just ahead, how the international coal boom may jeopardize Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Great Barrier Reef system in the Coral Sea stretches for 1,600 miles off Australia's eastern coast and is widely viewed as the down-under nation's greatest natural treasure. Its thousands of coral reefs harbor a vast biodiversity, and that prompted UNESCO to designate it a World Heritage Site in 1981. But today, the Great Barrier Reef ecosystem is under threat from development, and UNESCO is not happy. 
the organization is considering revoking its heritage status because Australia plans to build massive coal transport facilities on the Queensland coast. For more on this story, we turn to Tim McDonnell, Climate Desk Fellow at Mother Jones Magazine. Welcome to Living on Earth. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So now, where exactly is this coal coming from and where is it going? Well, it's coming from uh, mines in Australia and Almost all of it is bound for Asia, the vast majority for Japan, and then secondly to China. Interestingly, there's another suite of industrial coal export facilities being proposed for the U.S. Pacific Northwest. It's kind of a similar trend of countries seeking to find ways to send more coal overseas to Asia. The markets there are really kind of insatiable. Um, Those places are growing rapidly and coal is playing a big part of that development. And a place like Australia, which is actually the world's leading coal exporter, is now looking for even more ways to send more of this coal overseas. How will these coal facilities have an impact on the reef? Ship traffic coming around and actually through the reef would increase by as much as 50, almost 50%. This poses a great threat to the reef for a number of reasons, including the possibility of oil spills, potentially physical collisions with the reef, And then also a grave threat is the dredging of the ocean floor that would have to occur to build these ports and also to clear away for the ships to make their passage. The risk with the dredging is that uh, it dumps a lot of extra sediment and dirt, which blocks out the sunlight that the coral need to survive. Because coral have algae that live within their cells that photosynthesize sunlight. That's how they get their food. When the sun is blocked out, the coral can starve. How are people in Australia reacting to this news of these proposed facilities and the fact that UNESCO's all upset about it? If UNESCO made the move to effectively demote the reef from World Heritage status to what they call World Heritage in danger, this would send really sort of an embarrassing signal to the Australian people and to tourists worldwide. The Great Barrier Reef is a $5 billion tourist industry in Australia. Um, This demotion could send an embarrassing signal to tourists across the world that, you know, Australia is perhaps mismanaging its reef and is letting it maybe fall into disrepair or is putting it at risk to threats that could really damage uh, its integrity. Where has UNESCO retracted World Heritage uh, designation before? There's another coral reef in Belize where large chunks of it were sold off for development and that caused it to be demoted on the list. And then also... Afghanistan, this ancient Buddhist site that was sacked by the Taliban in 2001, uh, you may remember, and that action caused that site to be bumped onto the World Heritage in Danger list also. And so moving the Great Barrier Reef into association with those places, uh, you know, it, it would be an embarrassing and sort of shameful setback. So how is the Australian federal government and the Queensland uh, provincial state government responding to this challenge? They say that they take the recommendations very seriously. They're working on a way, a plan to, you know, address these proposed industrial facilities with an environmental conscience. But it remains to be seen what that will mean specifically. They haven't issued their response. And I I think a lot of conservationists in Australia are sort of, you know, waiting eagerly to see what that will be. Overall, how is the Great Barrier Reef doing these days? The interesting thing about this whole UNESCO issue is actually that it comes kind of at the tail of a whole series of other problems. You know, of course, reefs worldwide are under threat from um, a variety of things, including ocean warming. Um, There's also ocean acidification, which disrupts the coral's ability to build the bony structure, these uh, these beautiful rock-like forms that we all associate with coral. There's also overfishing, and in the Great Barrier Reef specifically, there's also 
an explosion of an invasive species of starfish called the crown of thorns starfish, which actually eats coral. And this invasive species has really blown up in the Great Barrier Reef and, and caused a huge problem. And so there's all of these threats happening simultaneously. Now these industrial facilities and the threat of UNESCO demoting it to this World Heritage in danger status could be the straw that broke the camel's back. Now, of course, burning coal is considered one of the big culprits in human-induced climate disruption. How are the Australians connecting the dots here? There is a certain irony, of course, in that these facilities that are being proposed, you know, are much largely to facilitate coal export, which is contributing to some of the very problems uh, that the reef is already facing. Acidification, ocean warming, you know, these things are linked directly to greenhouse gas emissions. And not to mention the trouble that Australia is having itself with the wildfires and uh, the extraordinary floods. Connecting the dots is always the challenge for uh, climate science communication. You know, I think the Great Barrier Reef being under threat could be a way to really bring this issue home to Australians and and say, you know, there are consequences to burning coal, to digging it out of the ground. There are consequences to that, um, you know, that we're going to see in ways that maybe we never expected, like the loss possibly of, you know, our greatest natural treasure, the Great Barrier Reef. Tim McDonald is a associate producer with the Climate Desk at Mother Jones Magazine. Tim, thanks for taking the time with me today. Pleasure. Thank you very much. When astronauts working in orbit around the Earth generate waste, they have little room to store it, and shipping it back to Earth is costly. So NASA is working on a space station recycling program. Now that might bring to mind the scene in Star Wars when Luke Skywalker and his friends get trapped in the trash compactor on the Death Star. I got a bad feeling about this. The walls are Don't just stand there, try and brace it with something. Well, in this case, truth does mimic fiction. The NASA waste handling system crushes waste to a fraction its original size, but fortunately the compactor is far too small to crush a person. That's according to John Fisher, a scientist with the bioengineering branch at NASA who listed the kinds of trash astronauts generate. Things like food packaging, food scraps, tape, cans, paper, plastic bags, uh, something we call mags, which is a maximum absorbency garment, otherwise known as a... um, a diaper. So then, exactly how does it work? It's uh, actually uh, fairly simple. All that waste is collected from around the spacecraft, and then it's placed inside the heat melt compactor, which uh, on its inside is maybe about 8 to 10 inch cube, and uh, it's filled up, pushed in there as much as you can get in by hand. And then it crushes the waste, and during that period of time, it starts heating it up to uh, drive off the water content. Uh, Recycling water is one of the really important things they do as part of uh, life support. So um, we continue heating it and continue compacting it until you compact from maybe something that was about 10 inches deep to about one-tenth or slightly less than that uh, of its uh, volume. And the temperature eventually goes up to something over 300, 400 Fahrenheit. And the plastic that's in there melts and encapsulates the waste. 
and then we cool it down and we bring it out and what you have is kind of a hard plastic tile with uh, most of the other waste materials embedded inside of it. So what do you do then with these hard tiles? What can they be used for? We get these, the tiles are about eight inches square by maybe one inch thick. And we use those with um, cargo transfer bags. These are used for bringing up equipment, and they're going to be designed to have pockets and such in them so that we can put these items up against the wall and insert the tiles into it, and then they can function as radiation protection for the crew. Radiation protection works best when the substance you're using contains a lot of hydrogen, and plastic contains a lot of hydrogen as well as carbon, which is uh, still a relatively good material for radiation protection. So where does all the energy come from to do all these processes? Well, on a spacecraft like uh, International Space Station, it mostly comes from solar panels. Some might say, why go to all of this? I mean, there's a lot of space out there, literally, and it's loaded with tons of junk. I mean, old satellite, spent rockets, even the paint chips from those rockets and such. What danger or harm would there be to adding to that? Why not just pitch the waste out the window, so to speak? Well, that's a good question, except that all of those objects are moving at uh, orbital speeds, which are in the neighborhood of tens of thousands of miles per hour, maybe 20,000 miles an hour. And uh, those kind of objects, if you're not moving the same direction they're moving, they're coming at you. It's like having a high-velocity bullet aimed at you. So even though there is, as you say, a fair amount of debris out there, It's um, larger pieces are tracked and and kept account of, and at least at this point in time, there's not enough of it that in low Earth orbit, for instance, where the space station is located, that it's a threat to the station. I would guess that this idea of recycling in space is even more important for longer missions, say, uh, getting outside the territory of the Earth and Moon towards Mars. Well, I think that is uh, one of our objectives that uh, many people would like to uh, see the agency mount a mission to go to Mars. And the typical classic Mars mission is about three years long. It's about roughly about nine months out and stay there, something like a year and a half and then nine months back. So for long duration missions like that, yes, it's extremely valuable to recycle as much as possible. John Fisher is a scientist with a bioengineering branch at NASA. Thank you so much, John. Well, thank you, Steve. And now, a forest mystery. In Pennsylvania, the arrival of white pickup trucks is often the first sign that hydraulic fracturing will take place nearby. When these trucks showed up near one of the state's best hiking trails, environmental activists and outdoor enthusiasts wanted to find out what was going on. But answers have been hard to come by from the state agency that runs the forest. As the Allegheny Front's Reed Frazier found, shedding light on what the state is planning there has been a bit like solving a whodunit. Ralph Kisberg stands on a boulder, looking down into a series of potholes at the bottom of a crystal-clear stream. I mean, I guess the theory is a rock gets in there and it gets swirled around for hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of years, and it wears away a nice little hole in there, gets trapped. This is Rock Run. It drains the western edge of a part of the Loyal Sox State Forest called the Old Loggers Path. The path is a 27-mile loop that straddles several small mountains in the middle of Pennsylvania, and it's a favorite of backpackers and hikers. Up on the old loggers path, Kisberg has to keep a lookout so as not to get lost. Now the only problem is 
We gotta really pay attention because this path is hard to find and hard to follow. Kisberg is head of the Responsible Drilling Alliance, an environmental group focused on natural gas development. This part of Pennsylvania, north of Williamsport, is one of the hottest drilling areas in the state, if not the country. But there's no drilling here right now. As recently as 2008, the state touted the old loggers' path as an area of exceptional value and beauty. Because of this, Kisberg thought the old loggers' path and rock run would be spared from drilling. But his outlook changed not too long ago. Well, it was last summer, and it was someone calling me to say, what's going on on Rock Run? There's, there, the, the, the frackers are up there. They're all over the place. White trucks were running up and down the small forest roads above Rock Run. Kisberg, who lives in nearby Williamsport, went up to the forest. He realized the trucks were there to conduct seismic testing. This is like getting an x-ray to see how much gas is underground. And it's the first step before drilling can take place. The Department of Conservation and Natural Resources, or DCNR, is the state agency that runs the forest. The DCNR said little about what was going on in Rock Run. Kisberg wanted to find out more, so he came here. So it's deeds we're looking for. This is the Lycoming County Courthouse. Kisberg learned that a man named Clarence Moore once owned the mineral rights to the old loggers' path. So with the help of a lawyer, he looked up the name. Clarence Moore... Not coming up. It took a while, but eventually they found documents like this one. John S. Williams for Frederick, Maryland, Anadarko EMP grantee. It was a sale of mineral rights to Anadarko, a big energy company. Mark Shebist is an attorney for the environmental group Penn Future. He helped Kisberg research the records. We discovered that Anadarko now owns half of the, uh, the oil and gas rights under, under the Clarence Moore tracts. That explained the seismic testing. Anadarko has drilled dozens of deep shale wells on state forest lands. But the research turned up something else. This particular land that we're talking about back in the day was owned by the Central Pennsylvania Lumber Company. Les Grevy is an oil and gas attorney in Williamsport. Grevy says that during the Depression, the company sold the land to the state, but it kept the mineral rights. Normally, this means the company would have an unbridled right to come onto the land to drill or mine for coal. But in this case, the land was essentially put on a timer. The company would have 50 years to extract the minerals. After that, the rights of surface access for 18,000 acres of state forest, a little bit bigger than the size of Manhattan, went back to the state. And if you want to come on it, you're going to have to negotiate with us, with DCNR, as to what you're going to pay for those, the right to come on it, and what the conditions are going to be. Eventually, Clarence Moore bought the mineral rights to the land. And after the 50-year period expired, Moore tried to regain surface access. But in 1989, a court rebuffed him. It said the DCNR could keep drillers off the land if it wanted to. But that isn't how the agency sees it now. Chris Novak is the DCNR's press secretary. As the law applies, DCNR can't prohibit access to subsurface mineral rights if we don't own them. Other DCNR officials have said Anadarko and other companies could sue the agency if it tries to keep the company off the old loggers' path. Novak and the DCNR remain tight-lipped about the agency's discussions with Anadarko. But Kisberg and others grew alarmed last year when survey markers for what looked like future well pad sites began showing up in the forest. And records obtained by the Responsible Drilling Alliance through right-to-know requests 
raised alarms even more. They revealed Anadarko has been talking with the state about a development plan for the forest for much of the past year. The details of those plans, however, remain unclear. An Anadarko spokeswoman would only say that no development plans had been approved. These cagey answers from the state bug Mark Shebus, the Penn future attorney. It's not right for DCNR to be making these decisions on its own without any public review of the documents. You know, if DCNR is so confident that it's, it's going to make the right decision, then why not let the public look over its shoulder a little bit and have a seat at the table? The DCNR counters that the state simply doesn't do public reviews of drilling plans on public land. The debate is only heightened because the state has already leased 700,000 acres of forest land. That's a third of the entire state forest system. That means that places like the old loggers path are becoming increasingly rare, says Paul Zeff of the Audubon Society. This is one of the places in the state that should be off limits. Zeff says this in spite of the fact that the old loggers path has been mined and timbered in the past. But the forest is unique because numerous springs and seeps keep it wet. That's good for bugs, and the bugs are good food for migratory songbirds who nest there. Plus, the forest is quiet, and the birds like that. No matter how careful DCNR and Anadarko plan the development, drilling is loud and disruptive. And, Zeff says, it would chase away some of these birds. And there's nowhere else in Pennsylvania for them to go. For now, the fate of this trail lies in the state capital of Harrisburg. Whatever happens there, it won't be a mystery for very long. For Living on Earth, I'm Reed Frazier in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Our story on the Old Loggers Trail comes to us by way of Pennsylvania's public radio program, The Allegheny Front. Coming up, the world's largest and perhaps oldest organism, and why it's under threat. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As well as being the hottest year on record, 2012 was one of the worst on record for forest fires. That's according to a report from the National Climate Data Center that chronicled over 9 million acres of forest burned in the U.S., one and a half times the average. Scientists estimate that the fire season now lasts 75 days longer than it did 40 years ago. In 2012, there were fires in places researchers thought would never burn, including parts of the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. One expert on western forest fires is Jason Seibold. He teaches geography at Colorado State University and says he knows what's causing the change. This is a climate-driven system that we're talking about. And over the last couple decades in the Rockies and in the West in general, we see that not just temperature, but snowpack is really driving this change in forest fires. Our snowpack is not as deep and it's melting out at an earlier and earlier date. And this is really critical. A lot of the forests that we had fires in the summer oftentimes have snow lingering well into June, maybe even early July. And now we have these areas are snow free in April, mid-April, and it allows them to start drying out. 
if we start to lengthen that fire season by melting that snow earlier, either through, you know, whatever combination of warmer temperatures, less precipitation, rain on snow, whatever it is, that that lengthening of the fire season is the driver of these large fire years. Now, Professor Seibold, you've done research on Fern Lake. That's part of Rocky Mountain National Park uh, there in Colorado, where there was a big fire last year. I understand that it was unexpected to have a fire there. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, this Fern Lake fire in Rocky Mountain National Park in a part of the park called Forest Canyon that started actually in October when we would normally think of this high elevation, very wet, shaded, deep valley as being under, you know, maybe one, two meters of, of snow in the fall. And it burned throughout the fall. It started in October. To tell you the truth, I just got a report that it's still smoldering. So our fire season, our 2012 fire season, in reality, still hasn't stopped. And the really unusual thing about the Fern Lake fire in Forest Canyon is that there's really no evidence of past fires. When we core trees, there are a lot of very old trees. And when I say very old trees, six, seven hundred year old trees are abundant in this valley. None of them are indicating that we have any fire within the last 800 years at least. And then if you start poking around and kicking around in the dirt and rocks and you're looking for, for charcoal, for example, for some indication of some past fire, further back in time, maybe a couple thousand years ago or something, you just don't find that. So we've got this Fern Lake fire in Forest Canyon that's burning in a very unlikely place, much less an unlikely time of year. So how can trees survive these changing conditions? What should we expect uh, in, in terms of seeing perhaps a shift then in the kinds of trees that can live in the Southwest and the Rocky Mountains? In theory, Species will start to move around and they will find their new places where they can survive in a new climate scenario. The big questions are, and we know that trees have done this in the past, falling glaciations, for example. The big difference that we have today is these trees have a lot of other factors going on, probably the, the most concerning of which is the rate of change that is projected in this century. Trees are not all that great at migrating long distances very quickly. The other thing is that we've got this highly altered landscape. We've got roads and parking lots and towns and ski areas and you name it. And these species may find their ideal new spot to reestablish themselves but if there's a parking lot there or if there's a road in the way, this is going to make things very challenging. Tell me uh, about the beetles. How big a factor are they in uh, forest fires? There are definitely relationships between beetles and forest fires. We've had extensive beetle outbreaks across the Rockies, across most of the West in the last two decades. At first, you know, there's this thought that, well, you know, all of this dead fuel, it must be more flammable. When I build a campfire or something, I use dead trees, right? I don't use live trees. But when we really start to study this, it just doesn't hold true. With wildfires, the mass of these live fuels is held up in the canopy. And these canopy trees, even when they're alive, if they're dry enough and it's hot enough, 
they become extremely flammable. The needles, the twigs, the really small stuff becomes extremely flammable. And the beetles, in reality, once they kill a tree, all of those fine fuels are moving from the canopy, a place where they can be highly flammable. They're moving to the forest floor. They're compacting. Um, they're not quite as flammable. They're holding their moisture longer. And we're left with that bowl of that tree that's just not as flammable as a really dry live tree. So beetles are not just a big factor in what we're seeing. What we're seeing is climate, climate, climate. So don't blame the spruce budworm. Don't blame the pine bark beetle. Blame anthropogenic climate change. As always, we get into these tricky situations where it's difficult to pull out a, a summer like 2012 and say, this is anthropogenic climate change, but this isn't a one-year event. This isn't a Katrina or a Sandy where it's even harder to pin it on things like, you know, something like anthropogenic climate change. We've got a few too many things adding up to start saying, hey, this is just a, a little normal swing in climate and we're going to go back. We're looking at what are projected to be more or less our average climate conditions by mid-century. It's not that far away. This is our new normal. This is our future. We're here. We're looking at what we need to be thinking about for the next few decades. Jason Seibold teaches at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks so much, Steve. Quick quiz now. What's the largest living organism on Earth? No, it's not a blue whale. It's a tree, a quaking aspen. That's right, a single quaking aspen in Utah covers 106 acres of land and is estimated to weigh more than 6,000 metric tons. Aspen trees flourish in much of North America, but in the western U.S., a genetic adaptation allows them to propagate not by seed, but by cloning. By some estimations, the aspen grove known as pando, that's Latin for I spread, could be shoots from a clone as much as 80,000 years old. That means it started sprouting when modern humans were migrating out of Africa. But the world's largest organism is now under threat. And here to explain why are Paul Rogers, director of the Western Aspen Alliance at Utah State University, and Karen Mock, professor of conservation genetics and molecular ecology at USU. Aspen as a species has two basic ways of reproducing. One is by seed and one is by root shoots. And if you're talking about a single clone or a single genetic individual like Pando, then that is, you're, you're probably looking at roots that sprout from pre-existing trees. Now, why do Western aspens reproduce this way, but the ones that we have out east don't? Well, they actually both, all across the range, they reproduce both asexually and sexually. It's just a matter of proportion. And so in the east, in, in northern environments, it appears that they, uh, seed reproduction is a whole lot more common. And therefore, the clones tend to be a little bit smaller. In the west, seed reproduction is a little more episodic. Seed reproduction is not as common as it is in moister landscapes. So it's a matter that it's too dry then. Yeah, and that the opportunities for seeding, the conditions that are just right for seeding, uh, don't always occur together at the same time as you have seeds. But is pando a girl tree or a guy tree? It's a male. <laughs> so pando is a male aspen, but uh, really at the end of the day is essentially sterile. Yeah, it's apparently a triploid, which means it's got three copies of its chromosomes instead of the usual two in aspen. 
And um, that condition means that it can do just fine vegetatively, but when it comes time to produce, in this case, pollen, the pollen grains are not likely to lead to the production of seed. In terms of evolution, how smart is this for a plant to not be able to reproduce sexually? Well, as a single plant, it's probably, especially in the West, it's probably great insurance so that you can persist a long time in in certain landscapes in between these episodes of sexual reproduction. Um, As a population, it's a little bit more questionable because you, as a population, if you lack genetic diversity, you really are at risk of not being able to adapt to changing conditions. So how are scientists able to estimate uh, Pando's age? I hear that this could be as much as 80,000 years old, but there's not exactly any individual trees available for counting the rings there, right? We all wish we knew the exact age of Pando or had some tool that we could use to get precise ages on certain clones. We really don't know the age. The 80,000 years was an estimate based on really the rates of expansion of Aspen as well as backward projections of what climates were thought to be like. And so it's that's a super rough estimate. We don't really have a good way to know that it's 80,000 years old. Paul Rogers, Pando isn't doing so well right now, though. What's going on? Well, that's correct, Steve. Right now, we have a lot of mature trees. Um, most of the stems are about 130 years old. And aspen typically lives about 100 years, give or take a a 50-year period. So at any rate, we're around that period where we would expect those stems to be dying off. The issue here uh, with pando currently is that there's very little to replace it. So we have almost no vertical diversity. If you think of a human population, you might think of toddlers, teenagers, middle-aged people, and, and mature adults to be sensitive there. And what we have is a lot of mature adults that are starting to die fairly rapidly but we don't have those extra generations to back them up. And so that's the key to the problem there. So what are the stressors for Pondo now? There's continual browsing of the young shoots, and these are very nutritious, very edible, and primarily to larger uh, browsers, both domestic and wild. So we have elk, deer, sheep, and cattle are the main culprits across the West. But we have to note here that Pando and a lot of aspen in southern Utah are growing in a fairly dry climate. So the reproduction is fairly slow as it is. And so even a small number of browsers, in this case uh, we think deer, can really keep the next generation or the next set of um, stems at bay. And that looks like the situation that we have on the ground now. I understand that you're working on the idea of putting a fence around Pando to keep out the grazing animals. How's that working out? Oh, that's correct. This sort of rapid die-off of mature trees has brought us into into a triage mode, you might say, with the Pando clone, and that we are planning to put up uh, an initial set of fences around about half the clone this coming summer. And the U.S. Forest Service is really instrumental in in having all that done because it's uh, in a touristy area near a recreational lake, and it's also a tourist attraction in and of itself, the Pando clone. And who's going to watch the fence? I mean, if uh, there's a hole in the fence, the elk will find there's good eating. You're exactly right. So if you can imagine yourself sort of walking down the street and you look into an ice cream store and there's no ice cream out on the street and it's a hot summer day, that's kind of, I think, what the browsers, the deer and elk are seeing inside that fence. And so if there's a breach, even one breach for a few days or a week, 
in the fence. And this is a lot more common than, than folks might think, that trees fall down and they fall over the fence and animals get in and, and they can eat everything. So you could lose essentially a year or more of trying to protect this clone with one or two small breaches and a week or two going by. And if your deer or anything like our deer out here in the east, uh, they can jump. That's true. And, and, you know, I found out they can get under the fences, too. They are quite crafty. And some of these deer have gotten trapped in there. And then it's unhealthy for the deer as well because there's not a water source in there and they can be essentially caged in. Could it be there are not enough wolves? There could be that there's not predators. That's certainly a factor in there. But we also have this whole system sort of pushed a little further to the edge because of climate. So we feel like we're accelerating the rate of die-off for the mature trees. And the more mature trees that are dead, the engine underground, which is the root system, has less energy to push up new recruits. I understand this is the largest known uh, aspen clone, but of course that doesn't mean that there aren't potentially bigger ones out there. Where are you guys looking for them? We don't have a program where we're actively looking for large clones. Both of our guesses are that there are probably larger clones out there, but there's not a systematic survey going on to find such a thing. Um, This clone was probably discovered because a road goes right through the middle of it. (laughs) It also has some morphological differences, some differences in the leaves and the stems from the adjacent clones, and so the boundaries are pretty easy to see. So when the leaves come out in the spring, do they all come out at the same time? Basically, yes. It's a little bit dependent on the size of the particular tree, but that is one of the most reliable ways actually to distinguish different clones because their timing and their day length perception does tend to be a little bit different. And then at the end of the season, they pretty much drop the leaves at the same time or change color at the same time? They do, but it's pretty striking. You can look across these western landscapes and see very clear outlines of uh, different leaf colors. It's very dramatic and beautiful. Tell me what it was like when you first saw Panto. That's a great question, Steve. The first time I went there, I actually saw one of those deer caught inside the fence. (laughs) And the uh, Forest Service uh, individual who was giving us the tour was sort of embarrassed. But uh, what I saw there was the very dry forest. We walked all through it. And this was only about five years ago. We didn't see near the rate of the overstory or the mature trees dying as we do now. So something seems to be happening there fairly quickly. And perhaps there's some sort of threshold that's been crossed in terms of drought and insects and disease. I mean, we can fence it off, but we cannot fence all the Western landscapes. Really, it's a microcosm for a much larger problem, particularly in the Southwest, but in many parts of the Western states. Karen, what was it like when you first saw Panda? Oh, <laughs> to me, it's, it's philosophically, it's just sort of a mind-blowing issue that you could have that many trees come from one seed and live for such a long time. It really... I think it challenges our human notions of um, both individuality and and mortality, and it's kind of fun to be challenged that way. Karen Mock is a professor of molecular ecology at Utah State University, and Paul Rogers is director of the Western Aspen Alliance at uh, USU. Thank you both for taking this time. Thanks for having us on, Steve. Thanks so much. Moving 
on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.